The man in black, Johnny Cash, is an iconic symbol in our world, and he represents what a lot of people have chased after, an elusive dream of, of success and, and, and valuables and things like that. And yet they come to the same conclusion that Solomon came to at the end of his life. He says in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, I denied myself nothing, my eyes desires, I refused my heart no pleasure, and yet when I survey all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. In his day, Johnny Cash was a superstar in action. He had it all. He had the fame. He had women. He had good looks. He had all kinds of record deals, and he could do no wrong. He was a powerhouse in the music industry. When you look at his life, he even had a museum that was established to show the success that he has had, that 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 he people could look at and could marvel all the things that had done he had done and yet if you watched that video closely you saw glimpses of the of yesterday where all of that fame was and then you fast forward to the museum that's in decay that no one is going to and all of his stuff is piled up in a heap one blogger stated it this way she said it depicts an accurate spiritual landscape upon which the human life plays out. You can achieve the height of worldly glory and fame, and it won't last. Johnny Cash tells us this through this video. It's an empire of dirt, and that is true. This morning, I want us to think about our own lives. There are some messages where we are introspective and we evaluate ourselves and we ask ourselves, okay, what is going on in my own life? And it's not easy doing an honest evaluation of ourselves because that means that we have to be honest. But what we're looking at here is we're asking out of Proverbs 11, uh, 11 what kind of empire, what kind of kingdom am I personally building? You have two choices. There's the empire of your own that you build for yourself. And if you have an empire of your own, what our passage is going to tell you is that you will do everything you can to get ahead, even if it's on the backs of others. You will use your words to exalt yourself and put others down. And it won't be one of character, it will be one of externals trying to get ahead in life. And in the end, you will try to take care of yourself and you are the primary investment. But if we're building God's kingdom, it is a very different picture. It's a very different picture. It's a picture of one leading a life of integrity and humility. It's one who uses their words to do whatever they can to make other people look better than themselves and to exalt them and allow them to know the truth. It is one that has, has moral character all about it and what people see is the beauty of your character and what they also see is you making an investment into the lives of other people, actually into God's kingdom that will far outlast you. 
So it's a, it's a legitimate question to ask, what empire, what kingdom am I building today? We're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 11. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 11. And once again, you're going to see some traditional things that you see with Solomon. He writes, and he often does so in contrast. He shows the righteous and the unrighteous. He shows the wicked, and he shows those that are good of heart and so forth. You see that contrast constantly. But most importantly, what I think Solomon gives us here is he gives us a matrix by which we measure our life. He is going to give us a matrix that we do have the option of doing things with integrity or pride. We can do things with our words that will build other people up or tear them down. We can have a beautiful character or we can be all about our externals. Or we can make an investment into God or we can make an investment into ourselves. He gives us this matrix. And so what we're going to do is we're going to evaluate four questions that come right out of our passage. And I want you to see that all four of these questions deal with this community that we live in. The community that we are to operate on a daily basis. And if we listen, we will understand what that community should look like for each and every one of us. Let's ask God to use his word to pierce our hearts, to encourage our hearts. I don't want us just to go through motions. I want us to be authentic before God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we pray, Father, that you would take your word and do something powerful in us as a body. Lord, we realize that we are the bride of Christ. And we realize that you have one desire, and that is to present us without wrinkle, without stain, without blemish, as you say in Ephesians 5. Lord, you are in that process of purifying us. And every Sunday when we come to hear your word and when we evaluate it with open hearts, Lord, there is a cleansing process that you take us through. So I pray that you would continue that work. Lord, I thank you, Father, that there is a process that you're taking our body through. That was evident in the baptisms today. God, I thank you that there are those that have said, I want to be obedient in this area. And I thank you that you are at work in our lives. So we, we commit ourselves this morning to you and ask that you would help us to evaluate the kind of kingdom, the kind of empire that we are building. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11, the very first question we're going to evaluate based on our passage is, who are we looking out for? Who are we looking out for? So we're going to see this in the first uh, eight verses. And what you're going to see as I go through this passage, just note integrity versus pride. You're going to see that constant tension in this passage. Listen, a false ba balance is an abom abomination to the Lord, but just weights is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. 
When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of the wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. Now notice the tension. We got two routes that are traveled here. One is a route by God that God wants us to travel down. As Christ's followers, he desires it of us, and it's a, it's a path of integrity. He wants that. It's going to make you successful in everything that you do if we are reflecting God in that way. But then there's another path that is one filled with pride. And he gives us different examples along the way. Notice in verse 1, he gives a business example. Now, it's not a business example that we practice today because it says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord and a just weight is his delight. You say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, in that day when they did trading and selling and all that kind of stuff, they used a weight system. And so what was very common with those that were crooked is that they had a different set of rocks that they would use for counterbalance. And if it was a heavier stone, they would use that in their, in their selling but, or, or a lighter stone for selling and heavier stone when buying. So therefore, they would make money coming and going and it was dishonest money. Now what God says, it's abomination. Now, that's a very, very big word for God to basically to say, I hate, hate, hate it. I hate it when this happens. I hate it when people do that. Why does God have such a disdain for this kind of dishonesty? Because God is an honest God. And God wants those that are righteous, those that are his followers, to reflect God. Do you realize that everything that we are to do and every command that God gives us here is only a reflection of his very character? God is never asking us just, he just doesn't give us rules. He just doesn't say, you do this and you do this and you do this. That's legalism. But what God does is it he connects it to his very character. And the reason that I'm honest is because God is honest. And he wants us to be a reflection of him. And my friends, there's nothing that we do in this life where we stand alone. Sometimes we think it's in secret. You're wrong. It's never in secret. We always, always, 100% of the time reflect God. And that's why God has this disdain for that. In verse 2, he gives a picture of humility versus pride. All of this is going back to integrity and pride. Humility and pride. Humility is another way that we have integrity. Notice what he says. But when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility is wisdom. Now I want you to know the contrast here of humble and pride is the difference between the natural and the supernatural. Do you realize that every one of us have a pride problem? Every one of us, we're born with this thing called the flesh. And as a result, we want to live for ourselves. We want to seek for ourselves. We want to please ourselves. We were born that way. Just look at a newborn. Look at a two-year-old. You'll find it out really quick because life is about me. Yes, meet my needs now. Well, as we grow up, we learn how to disguise that a little bit better. But it's still the problem. My daughter and son-in-law have gotten a new dog. He is a wonderful grandpuppy. His name is Miles, and he is a great Dane. 
Now, I want you to know, as a great Dane, he is like up here, and he is a wild puppy. He's get, learning to, to get tame. He hasn't gone through obedience school yet. But when you say, Miles, sit, he doesn't always sit unless you have a treat in your hand. He doesn't always come when you say come. He's working on it, and they're working on that training process. Now, my wife has a friend who has a dog that's been through all kinds of classes on obedience. And so when that lady, when she calls their dog, he comes right to the side. When she says, look, he looks. When, he says, when she says, walk, he walks. When she says, stop, he stops. See, this is the picture between pride and humility. Humility says, I will submit. I will listen to whatever you want me to do. And it is a person who is a Christ follower that is listening to the voice of God that is saying, I'll look, I'll go, I'll, do, I'll stop, I'll do whatever you want. But pride says, I'm just going to do what I want. I'll give God a little bit on Sunday, but you know, during the rest of the week, it's mine. It's mine. And what God wants to do is break us of that. But here's the deal. It can only happen if we get a new heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? See, there needs to be a surgery in our heart. God has to take out the old heart and he has to put a new heart. That's what Ezekiel 36 says. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and, a, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, I have a fear that there are some that have come on a weekly basis and you're listening, but God hasn't given you a new heart. Do you know the first act in which God does the surgery is when he hears not only that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, but when you say, okay, God, I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. I submit myself to you. And I ask that you cleanse me. How, do you have a new heart? Because I want you to know you can never live the righteous life without a new heart. And that comes by yielding your life to Christ. And soon after, you get to do this as a picture that you're dead to yourself and alive in Christ. Now, in verse 3, it talks about integrity versus crookedness. We're not going to look at that verse. Just know that integrity means moral wholeness. In verses 4 to 8, we don't have time to examine it in details, but let me give you a summary. It's wickedness versus righteousness. Now, the righteous are those that follow God, and Solomon says that their righteousness will actually produce something. It will produce an enrichment of your life. It will prolong your life. In other words, give you all the years that God has ordained for you in fulfillment. It will, he will give you direction. He will give you deliverance from trouble. All of this is in our passage. Whereas those that are without God have a very different outcome in their life. Look at verse 4. It says, they look forward to the day of wrath. Do you realize that if you do not have a brand new heart, if God has not taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, then you are looking forward to a day of wrath. See, we have a holy God. A holy God must deal with sin. And he is grieved because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everybody to come to a place of repentance. He wants that for every single one of us. But if we choose to go on in life without him, 
then we will pay for our sins ourselves. Verse 5 says that he falls into his own wickedness. In other words, his own trap. Verse 6 says that he is taken captive in prison by his own lust. And verse 8 says that he is it says that the wicked walk right into trouble. Do you see what's happening? They're in the cage. They're bound up because of sin. And they think they're free because they can do whatever they want. But in all reality, they're in shackles. See, as you're seeing, what we're seeing here is a pattern. A pattern of those that want to honor God. And when we look at that pattern, we see that those that want to honor God have a totally different value system than those that don't. Here's the thing, though. I have often noticed that those that do not have the value system that my wife and I have, they look at me and they want what we have. They want a marriage that's going to last 29 years and beyond. They want to have success in business. They want to have all the fruits and all the benefits that God says goes along with the righteous, and they're envious. But they don't have that. They're not willing to pay the cost. Dear believer, Christ follower, when you give your life to Christ and when you follow after him, please understand it is an admirable thing to be a Christ follower, but it is a difficult thing. Because as soon as you step out and say, I am following the value system of Christ, all of a sudden you are going to go against the raging stream of our society. And immediately you begin walking upstream. And it feels like that because you're going against everything else that the world holds to. While the world's saying, get all that you can, live for yourself, you're saying, no, I got to die to myself. I got to live for Christ. For me to live as Christ, and to, 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 I need to live a crucified life. That's what I'm called to do. It's an admirable thing. The question is, is that what you're doing? Who is it that you're looking out for? What kind of kingdom are you building? Here's the second question. How are you using your words? Take a look at verse 9. Notice how, the how our mouth is used here. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. But by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, and by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Notice the mouth. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. That's not easy to do. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps things covered. Where there is no guidance, a people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Now, last week we talked about words as well. It must mean that God is very concerned about what comes out of this pie hole of ours. He's concerned about what goes in, but more importantly, what comes out. He wants to make sure that what we are doing is honoring to him. And what, what Solomon does is he lays out the benefits of our words and also the destruction of our words in the context of community. Did you see it? How many times the word neighbor or city that was mentioned in this passage? Verse 9 says that the godless person has a way of destroying his neighbor. 
Now let's define a godless person. A godless person is a person who lives without reference to God, lives their life without reference to God. Now, we might immediately want to dismiss this and say, oh, that's, that's somebody else. That's somebody out in the world. That's somebody that's way far away from God. But please understand, I have seen it in my day. Many people that say that they're Christ followers live their daily lives without reference to God. We go to church on Sunday, but then the rest of the week we do what we want. God's not a part of our decision. We don't spend time with God. We don't pray for our neighbor. We don't embrace the day as if it is a mission that God has given us. In fact, we might just kind of go through life in a humdrum way, or we might be cutthroat in business, and we'll step on whoever we need to step on, and we'll just say, it's just business. Behind closed doors, we have no problem assaulting another person. See, the key to understanding whether we are godless is not whether we think we are, but it is simply to look behind us at the wake that is behind us. What is behind us? What kind of path are we leading? Are people, do we have a, strain, a, 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 a whole wake of strained and broken relationships? Do people avoid us? Do people trust us as individuals? You see, according to this passage, the consistent Christ follower is going to build up his neighbor. He will be seen as an upright individual and he will be sought out in his counsel. Now please also notice that there's something that happens when we as collectively as Christ followers are careful with our words and with our actions. What happens? The city rises up and says there's something different. For two times in verse 10 and 11, it says the city rejoices and the city is exalted. This tells me, my friends, that God has placed the church within a community for that community. And God wants us, and some of us are in North Canton, some of us are in Perry, some of us are in, uh, are in Jackson, are in uh, different townships, Uniontown, Greentown. God has placed you in that place so that the city will rise up and rejoice because of you. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. A city on a hill should not be hidden, but it is to show the glory of God so that people will rejoice. That's what God has done. There's an interesting story in Jeremiah 29 when the people of Israel went into exile. God was, was punishing them. And he takes them to the city of Babylon, and there was a false prophet that came along and said to the people, separate yourself. Don't do anything with those Babylonians. You keep yourself completely separated, alienated from them. Then God says through his prophet, he says, no, 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 do not listen to him. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start having families within that city. I want you to, to have your houses there. And then he says this, I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of that city. Dear church, hear what is being said. When the world sees a consistency in us as believers, people will be drawn to God. When they see the integrity in our life, they will be drawn to God. When they see the integrity in the business place, they will be drawn to God. They're going to want to know what it's all about. We are to use our words in this way. 
But what empire are we building? If it's my empire, that won't happen. Here's the third question. Do we have attractive lives? Take a look at what it says in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, a gracious woman gets honor. Notice the quality of the individual. It all attributes to character. A gracious woman gets honor, and a violent man gets riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of a crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Now get this. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Now, what Solomon is doing is moving from our words and focusing in on actions. And what he is saying here, he is trying to build the, the account for the righteous to be attractive in their nature. And the, the, the attractiveness is seen here. A gracious woman, a man who is kind, the one who is steadfast as being a righteous person. Now, please understand that there's also benefits of being attractive. I like to be good looking. Now, what I can't do here, I can do here. That's a good thing. You might be really ugly. But understand, God wants to make you good looking. And he will make you really good looking from the inside out. This is the benefits. And attract, the, the benefits is that you have honor. Isn't that an awesome thing? Honor. You have advancement. You have fulfillment. These are all within our passage of the benefits of the person who has character. Now, in contrast to that are those that are merely focusing on external achievements without regards to God. Those that are ruthless, that are, are going for riches only. Those that are cruel and wicked. Those that are only going for self-advancement. And then Solomon does something curious. In verse 22... He makes a highly unusual comparison. He makes a comparison that was dangerous in that day, and I'm sure it's dangerous in this day. He compares a woman with a pig. Now, you just don't do that, especially in the Jewish culture where the most defiled animal that you could get is a pig. And so they're making a comparison. Now, notice what he's doing. He says, the pig with a gold ring in his nose. Now, here's the deal. In that culture, a woman often accessorized their outfit with a gold ring. It made them look outwardly beautiful. And I, it doesn't do much for me, but in that culture, man, the gold ring right there, man, it made her look, ooh-wee, here she comes. That is a good-looking Jewish woman. And so that's what they were going for, accessorizing. Now what Solomon does is he says this. He makes this comparison, and the point he's making is this. It doesn't matter how attractive the woman is. If she doesn't have character that matches the outward beauty, she is like an accessorized pig. Wow. Church. Or are we like an accessorized pig? 
do what God wants. He defines beauty much different than the world does. I think of Galatians 5 that says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think of the character quality that Paul talked about in Colossians chapter 3, that we would be filled with compassion, humility, forgiveness, and love. These are the characteristics that are attractive to God. So are you attractive? What kingdom are you building? What empire? Is it just about you, or does it go deeper than that? Here's the last question, and we'll conclude with this. Who are we investing into? Look at verse 23 through 25, and I'm going to give you a warning in advance. This might be difficult because it deals with something that is near and dear to every one of us, our money. Notice what he says, verse 23. The desire of the righteous ends only in good the expectation of the wicked in wrath so you got the contrast but then he says this in verse 24 one gives freely yet grows all the richer another withholds what he should give and only suffers and suffers want verse 25 whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. See, in this final section, Solomon gives us the fruit of generosity, the fruit of investment into other people. And the righteous have one way, and the wicked have another. Now again, nobody wants to be seen as wicked. No one wants to be seen as godless. But the evidence of who we are is very tangible it's how generous are you as an individual see in this one there is something very tangible we could look at you can look at all you got to do is take out your checkbook and you can do this evaluation for yourself so there's two principles i see in generosity that solomon is giving us the first one is in verse 24. Let me give you the principle and let's read the verse again. Generosity, here's the principle, is the practical means by which people see God's love in us. Get that. Generosity is the practical means by which we see God's love in us. Take a look at verse 24. One gives freely and yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers once. What, suffers want. So Solomon gives a paradox here. A paradox seems like a contradictory statement. And the paradox is that the person who freely gives has more, and yet the one who isn't generous will have less. See, what God is clearly saying is that he loves generosity. Why? Because God is generous. Remember what I said here? Everything he asked us to do is based on who he is. 
And when God has been so generous to us, he's lavished us with a home. He's lavished us with clothing. He's lavished us with the food that we need. He's lavished us in that way. He certainly expects his children to follow his example and to be generous. But you know, when we're not generous, when we, when we don't give, what we're saying is, yeah, God, you can give all that you want to me. Yes, you can bless me. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that blessing and I'm going to buy a new boat. I'm going to buy a new car. I'm going to buy a new this. I'm going to buy a new that. And I'm going to get so in debt to such a place that I would say, you know what? I really want to give, but I can't. God sees that. And what he wants of us is to be generous like him. And he reminds us that we got ourselves into that predicament. It's up to us to apply his principles to get out so that we can be generous. It all depends on what your heart says. Here's the second principle. The second principle is verse 25. The way in which we are generous is the standard by which God will be generous with us. Take a look at verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And the one who waters will himself be watered. You know, Jesus made the same statement in a different way in the New Testament. So this is Solomon's words. Let's look at Jesus' words. Listen to what he says. It's not on the screen. Just listen. Luke 6, 38. Jesus said it. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured over into your lap. For the measure with which you use, it will be measured to you. The fact is that God wants us to be a generous people, to be individuals that are generous, to be a church that's generous. Some time ago, my wife and I felt convicted about this whole idea of generosity. Now, you need to know that early on in our marriage, we had determined that it didn't matter how little we made or how much we made. At minimum, we would give a tithe of 10%. And we have been true to that Every single paycheck that we have ever had, we have given at least that. And that was our foundation. Our goal was that when God prospered us, our promise to God is that we would increase that which we have. Now, I want you to know that that's the tithe. Now, we did a, I did a study some time back, and I realized in the Old Testament there was tithes and offerings. You'd hear about tithes and offerings, tithes and offerings. And I realized that tithe is what was required to keep the kingdom going in the Old Testament, but the offering was the free will. It was where the generosity was truly seen. And what I realized is that we were doing the law, we were doing the basics of what we needed to do, but we weren't being generous. And so what we did is we said, we're going to be generous. So we determined that there would be a certain amount that we would set aside each paycheck, and we would put that in what we call a blessing account. And in that blessing account, as we heard of needs, if there was someone going on a mission project, if there was uh, recently we heard about the Iraqis that were displaced for their homes and through our World Health partner, we, wanted to, we talked about it, and we said, let's send some money, and that was out of the blessing account. 
And I don't say this in a braggadocious way. Please understand that. But I say it as more of a testimony for you to understand that we, under, we have seen that these principles are absolutely 100% true. I could never, my wife and I could never, ever outgive God. We can never. We try to teach that to our children. We'll teach it to our grandchildren that you can never outgive God. Now, mathematically, it doesn't work sometimes. I will tell you that. But supernaturally, it always works. And we have seen it to be true. But why does it matter so much to God? Jesus said it best. He said this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our generosity simply reflects the heart of God and practically it's how God gets his work done. Now I know some people would say, man, you're, I'm at a place where you were like 15 years ago where it was very difficult for you to just meet all the bills and things like that. I'm, I don't, we don't have a blessing account. Well, you can have a blessing account with your time. There's somebody that you can take under your wing and you can disciple that person you can be like the Bezics and raise a whole farm and want to give away eggs and things like that to somebody. Yeah, you can do that. You can do that. You can determine in right now that there is a percentage that I am, we are going to give uncompromisingly to God. We're going to give it. We are going to do that because it is the right thing to do. So here's my question. As we back away from the passage... What empire are we building? Now, I know some of us, there's a tension in Proverbs. There's a tension that exists because that tension seems to be of extremes. It's either hot or cold, hot or cold. This message seems to be like there's hot or cold. Hey, Steve, how about right in the middle? Is there any place in the middle where I can just be, like, comfortable? Just Because like, that's kind of where I'm at, if I'm really honest. I'm not certainly wicked, but I'm not certainly, man, that generous, per the, the, the things that you're describing, that's not me yet. I'm comfortable right in between. You might be, but God is not. God is never comfortable with lukewarm. He's never comfortable with complacency. He said to a church in Revelation, he said some pretty hard words, and I don't know if it's true of any of us here, but here are the words. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need anything. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. God has called us to live in community, but he wants us to do that without compromise or complacency. He wants our full heart. Does he have it? During this final song, I surrender, and we're kind of mixing in a little bit of the song from Johnny Cash, but I want us to think about our empire. What are we building? Is it God's empire? Is it man's empire? 
And this, hopefully, can be, for some of us, a defining moment. As you think about the words, I can't get inside of each person's mind or heart, but I can get inside of Steve, and I can dedicate myself to God. God, no. Complacency should not be in me. I ask that you would forgive me, help me to be the person that is righteous, that is building your kingdom. Help me to do that with all my heart. May that be your prayer.